This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. On Friday came news that California Representative Eric Swalwell, who led House impeachment efforts against Donald Trump, has become the latest plaintiff to sue the former president for his role in inciting the Capitol insurrection. The lawsuit aims to hold Trump, as well as his son Don Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama, accountable for inflaming tensions ahead of the January 6th riot. We are now learning this morning that former President Trump is being sued by one of the impeachment managers, Eric Swalwell, filing the civil suit against not just the former president, but his son, Donald Trump Jr., uh, Congressman Mo Brooks, Rudy Giuliani as well. Swalwell's lawsuit follows one delivered by the NAACP on behalf of Representative Benny Thompson, which marvelously was served to Trump at his Mar-a-Lago residence last week. Just like Thompson's suit, Swalwell cites the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act, created to protect lawmakers from violence and intimidation. But Swalwell's suit, which was filed in the United States District Court in Washington, D.C. by the law firm Kaiser Dillon, goes further and accuses Trump and his key allies of breaking anti-terrorism laws, aiding and abetting violent rioters, and intentionally inflicting severe emotional distress on lawmakers who were at the Capitol that day. The uh, analogy would be a defendant in a criminal case being found not guilty by a jury and then being sued civilly for essentially the same conduct. It happens a lot. It happened with O.J. Simpson, for example. And that's essentially what we're looking at now. If the civil courts is the right forum, we're here and we're going to take this case and we're going to bring it before a judge and a jury and we're going to have the merits adjudicated that way. The complaint alleges, as a direct and foreseeable consequence of the defendant's false and incendiary allegations of fraud and theft, and in direct response to the defendant's express calls for violence at the rally, a violent mob attacked the U.S. Capitol. Swalwell is also seeking unspecified financial damages from Trump's role in inciting the riot and is demanding Trump provide written notice seven days in advance of a rally or public event hosted in Washington on an important election day. It says that the siege was a direct and foreseeable consequence of the months of claims by Mr. Trump and the others in the lawsuit that the election was stolen. They all spoke at the rally, all those who were sued before the riot, and the lawsuit says they whipped up the crowd for violence. Like a similar lawsuit filed last month by Congressman Benny Thompson of Mississippi and the NAACP, this one also invokes a federal civil rights law that allows lawsuits against government officials for claims that they conspired to violate civil rights. Swalwell's lawsuit paints a much fuller picture of Trump's actions before and after the event. Drawing on House impeachment manager's case against the former president, suing under a wider theory of negligence. The suit does not focus on extremists who planned for violence, but the many more who were there for a political rally before the defendants and others alleged whipped them into a frenzy and turned them into violent mob that participated in the attack. Once again, Trump who has long used the courts as a cudgel against his enemies, is getting it back in spades with this lawsuit, treating him like a nuisance that he is, and also seeking punitive damage that could create disastrous financial problems for the former president. The strategy here with these civil suits is death by a thousand cuts. If Trump couldn't be impeached wholesale and prevented from holding office, 
These lawsuits will make him a full-time defendant, eating away at his personal liberty and his pocketbook until the criminal trials can begin. The lawsuit concludes, the defendants, in short, convinced the mob that something was occurring that, if actually true, might indeed justify violence, and then sent the mob to the capital with violence-laced calls for immediate action. Ironically, it was left to Trump's lowlife spokesman and hooker enthusiast Jason Miller, who has his own well-recorded history with the courts, to provide response to Swalwell's suit, telling the Washington Post, Eric Swalwell is a lowlife with no credibility. The federal investigation into the January 6th riot is moving it slowly but methodically, with new information revealed daily about the origins of the insurrection or the people responsible for its derivation. Now comes news that the FBI has arrested the first actual Trump administration political appointee, 42-year-old Federico Klein, for his role in the storming of the Capitol. An FBI lookout bulletin issued two weeks after the Capitol assault included a picture of Klein, prompting an anonymous tipster to contact the FBI and finger him as the man in the photograph, according to an affidavit filed in federal court in Washington. According to the FBI affidavit, as of January 6th, the day that this all went down, insurrection, Klein also had an active top secret security clearance. That same 16-page FBI affidavit published today by the New York Times reveals that Klein was present in some of the most grisly, violent, upsetting scenes at the Capitol on January 6th. Video from police warned body cameras on January 6th shows Klein jamming a riot shield into doors at the Capitol as police were trying to secure them to keep the mob out. Klein was also heard on video trying to encourage others to fight with the police, yelling, We need fresh people! We need fresh people! Klein shouted repeatedly, while seemingly acting out some latent Rambo fantasy he was unable to exercise from his psyche during paintball or call of duty. We need fresh patriots! Klein seems to have been a mid-level Trump campaign associate. I certainly never knew him during my time on the campaign. He's just another brainwashed MAGA schmuck who ruined his own life in service to the big lie and fat-ass Donald Trump. And body camera footage shows that Klein himself pushed his way to the front of the crowd. That is a Trump administration official in the mob pushing his way to the front of the crowd physically and verbally engaging with officers attempting to stop the invasion. Klein worked on the 2016 campaign and was then hired at the State Department. He is charged with several felonies, including assault on police officers, interfering with police during civil disorder and obstruction of an official proceeding, as well as lesser offenses. While a relative nobody in the Trump apparatus, Klein's arrest nonetheless brings the insurrection into the administration. Where it stops now is the ultimate question. 
Klein will likely be pressured to rat on his associates, and the FBI will begin chasing this up the ladder. And here we go, folks. The FBI is investigating whether foreign governments, groups, or individuals may have funded extremists who helped plan and execute the January 6th attack. FBI sources telling NBC News that the Bureau is examining payments of $500,000 in Bitcoin, apparently by a French national, to key figures and groups in the alt-right before the riot. It's kind of weird. Let's now shed a tear for those lowly Senate clerks who were forced into extra duty by Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. In some misguided attempt at irony or owning the libs, as these folks like to say, Johnson had the clerks read out loud all 628 pages of the coronavirus stimulus bill, 100,000 words in all. It was a lame stunt aimed at registering his objections to the bill while using the Senate's arcane rules to delay debate on the bill. I don't want to sound like a leftist, but I'm going to resist. Okay, so the first way I'm going to resist is I'm going to go down and object to the waiving of the reading of the bill. I will make them read their 600 to 700-page bill. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer accused Johnson of going to ridiculous lengths to show his opposition to the package, saying it will accomplish little more than a few sore throats for the Senate clerks who work very hard day in, day out to help the Senate function. Johnson, who is a dead ringer for George Costanza's boss from Kruger Industrial Smoothing on Seinfeld, defended his actions as necessary. But this guy is a total fucking asshole. The clerks finished at 2.04 a.m. after an 11-hour delay, allowing the bill to proceed into debate as required and accomplishing absolutely nothing. Well, for real people, this is every minute, every hour. It means people are going hungry. It means they're getting further behind on their rent. They're worried about losing their car. Um, this has already taken far, far too long. And I think in addition to the very, very human consequences, including for seniors, for, for children, there's also the fact that these kinds of procedural maneuvers really do shake the American people's confidence in government, which has already been badly shaken by the fact that the Senate, from March until the end of December, really took no action at all to deliver help with this pandemic to the American people. This is where we have sunk with the GOP. Their ability to weaponize the arcane rules of the Senate to wreak fucking havoc on the political process is well known during the post-election certification crisis. But this nonsense is next level obnoxious. They have become a party of trolls and nothing more. But on the real though, this is not just petty, it's disgusting. And on top of that, I'd respect him maybe a little bit more if he read the bill himself. But instead, this bitch is making some poor clerk read it? Like, you don't get to act like you're some heroic resistor if someone else is doing the work. Now let's talk about Andrew Cuomo. We are equal opportunity here at Mea Culpa in our search for the truth and our desire to expose the hypocrisy and criminality of the political system wherever it leads. While the majority of the show is spent on Donald Trump and his inner circle, we still live by the credo of nothing but the truth. Besides, 
Cuomo is a fascinating and flawed human being who is entertaining to watch in his operatic desperation to be admired and adored. Growing fallout for New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and his administration over withholding COVID death toll numbers in nursing homes. The growing scrutiny comes just weeks after New York Attorney General Letitia James released a report claiming the state had undercounted nursing home deaths by as much as 50 percent. State health officials acknowledge the death toll was more than 15,000, much higher than originally reported. A top Cuomo aide admitted withholding data for months over concerns the Trump Justice Department might use the info against them. Those comments sparked immediate backlash among lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. State Republicans going so far as to say he should be impeached. He possesses many of the same sociopathic traits as the Donald, and the Cuomos themselves go all the way back to Queens with the Trumps. Their mothers were friendly with one another. But this isn't a story about the Cuomos and the Trumps. We're here to talk about Andrew Cuomo and his own sociopathy. I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. Last spring, as New York City suffered through the worst of COVID and the city became a morgue, Cuomo's daily pressers became a form of collective therapy for the city and appointment viewing for the rest of the country. That they were often opposite Trump's own COVID task force pressers drove the former president fucking insane. And Cuomo, no shrinking violent in the bully department, was able to shove it back in Trump's face to the glee of traumatized television watchers everywhere. What are you going to grant me what the Constitution gave me before you were born? It's called the Tenth Amendment. I didn't need the President of the United States to tell me that I'm governor. And I didn't need the President of the United States to tell me uh, the powers of a state. Twitter lit up with love letters to Cuomo, and the media wondered aloud why he was not running against Trump instead of Joe Biden. Here was the Donald's rhetorical equal, a man unafraid to punch back. But Cuomo never seriously considered running, nor did the DNC do much to encourage this line of thinking either. Why not? Because they knew, as did a lot of folks, that Cuomo was good at playing wartime consigliere. What do you think, this is the army where you shoot them a mile away? You gotta get up close like this, and bing you blow their brains all over your nice cyber league suit. But in his closet lurked a truckload of skeletons. There was just something a little off about him. Now, I'm not talking about the nipple rings or incessant self-regard and long-winded monologues, but there was this constant whisper that the guy was just sort of wrong. I never touched anyone inappropriately. I never touched anyone inappropriately. I now understand that I acted in a way that made people feel uncomfortable. Fine for New York State, but under the microscope of a national campaign, things would emerge. And emerge they have. First was the nursing home scandal and the reported purposeful undercounting of deaths. Cuomo attempted to brush it off by saying he did it to prevent Trump from weaponizing those statistics during the campaign. Then, there was this creepy behavior towards women, harassment, and unwanted advances. 
This morning, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo facing new calls for resignation after a third woman has come forward with accusations of sexual harassment. Anna Rook telling the New York Times the governor tried to kiss her at a New York City wedding reception in 2019. And then sharing this photograph she says was captured on her cell phone that night by a friend. Rook saying that when Governor Cuomo put his hand on her bare lower back, she, quote, promptly removed his hand with my hand. According to the paper, the governor remarked that she seemed aggressive and placed his hands on her cheeks. He asked if he could kiss her. Finally, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that those COVID deaths were undercounted and delayed earlier than previously thought. Aides have admitted now to rewriting reports from the New York Health Department as early as last June. Cuomo, it seems, was eager to tout the state's success in handling the pandemic and was in the midst of writing a book on the subject entitled American Crisis that positioned him as the hero of COVID, uniquely qualified to lead the state through its darkest hour. This morning, growing political fallout for New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. We needed honesty and clarity, not confusion and evasiveness. And many of us on both sides of this aisle have deep, Deep, deep concerns. State lawmakers voted Friday to revoke the emergency powers he was granted last year to handle the COVID crisis. This comes amid new reports from the New York Times and Wall Street Journal claiming his top aides altered a nursing home report to undercount and obscure the true death toll numbers. Reading it now, in light of all of what has happened, has been a cringeworthy exercise in schadenfreude. But now independent investigators are leaning into the episode and New York Attorney General Tish James has gotten involved. The knives are out for Cuomo. How this all shakes out is anybody's guess, but we'll keep watching. Sing it up, mister! Hey, what I say, sir, yeah. And now for the main event. Last week's security threat at the Capitol put our current domestic terror threat into stark and urgent terms. While we may snicker and laugh at the intent of these groups as they plot to reinstall Donald Trump as president, they themselves are deadly serious. We are at a moment in time, not unlike the post 9-11 period, where we must figure out how to respond to the threat. My persistent fear is that January 6th was just the beginning and that we are looking at a future where extremist violence and domestic terror becomes the number one threat to this nation. In order to better understand the preconditions to how we got to this place and better understand where we are headed, I reached out to Spencer Ackerman, senior national security correspondent for the Daily Beast. His reporting on the January 6th insurrection and its aftermath has been appointment reading for me during this extraordinary moment. Prior to the Daily Beast, Ackerman was part of a team of reporters and editors at the Guardian newspaper who received a Pulitzer for their work on Edward Snowden and his whistleblowing activities related to the NSA. In addition, 
Ackerman wrote the upcoming book, Reign of Terror, for Penguin Random House, which will be in stores this August, and charts the profound impact that the war on terror had in pushing American politics and society in an authoritarian direction. Now that we are headed into a war on domestic terror, Ackerman's book is more relevant than ever, and I'm lucky to have his perspective on mea culpa. So let's listen now to that conversation. Spencer, one of the thesis points for your book, Reign of Terror, is pinned atop your Twitter feed, and you write, Explanations for how the U.S. reached its nationalist moment have overlooked something, the war on terror. Its generation-long brutality has left a toxic political legacy. Can you explain, please, to my listeners in what way this toxic political legacy led to the election of Donald Trump in the first place? Sure thing, Michael. And thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. This was not something I expected. I've been looking forward to it all week. And to get right into that, uh, this is a conversation that I'm very interested in getting your reactions to, not just as someone who was, you know, for so long in the Trump orbit, but just as, you know, if I'm not misunderstanding, uh, we are uh, two native New Yorkers, correct? That is correct. You were from where? I am from Flatbush, Brooklyn. Oh, sure. Where I still live. Oh, interesting. My, my mom went to Midwood uh, and I was actually born in, the, yeah, I was born in the Brooklyn Hospital on DeKalb Avenue. Know the area quite well. Certainly well enough, unlike a lot of people, to pronounce it correctly with the correct inflection. Anyway, you asked about Reign of Terror. So as a native New Yorker, you will, of course, remember the trauma, the horror and the outrage that resulted from 9-11. And what I think has become much clearer in retrospect is how powerful political figures uh, at the beginning in the Republican Party, but always with the acquiescence out of fear of the Democratic Party, channeled that very real, very uh, robust and very raw trauma into what I think we can fairly call a psychotic period in American foreign policy, a period where, on the one hand, the mechanisms of national security are spun up with new purpose and new direction, but not with new focus. And on a different level, a very raw feeling of besiegement and of anger was able to be channeled very easily into a culture war. And that culture war initially targeted Muslims. Uh, It initially uh, treated uh, immigrants not as a source of, you know, more Americans, but as a source of national danger. And these two strands of the policy level and the cultural level feed on each other in such a way after the wars deteriorate into things that the United States can't win in such a way that they start looking for other targets. They start looking for targets closer to home and they start coming up with explanations for why the U.S. can't, as as such a supremely powerful nation, can't get out of this circumstance that start leaning into kind of civilizational explanations, that this ultimately is a war against Islam, that it has nothing to do 
with the dominant position of American foreign policy and how such dominance throughout history, whoever does it, always breeds resistance. Some of that resistance will take the form of religiously inspired resistance. And particularly over the Obama years, which is kind of the meat of my book, uh, Reign of Terror, you start seeing this, what I like to call a decadent phase of the war on terror. After it seems the wars can't be won themselves, Obama decides after the Osama bin Laden raid not to declare this era over and start unwinding some of the emergency powers, if not all of the emergency powers that were passed after 9-11 into this sense that results as uh, there's always another explanation for who is stopping the United States from winning, that it becomes this person in the White House who, you know, mysteriously, uh, by being the first African-American president, uh, attracts a lot of racist conspiracy theories. It's important that uh, we recognize that one of those conspiracy theories, the principal one, in fact, birtherism, the one that your former boss spread, uh, if not, you know, acting as the supreme practitioner of it, is itself a creation of the war on terror? Because it's not just that he's uh, black, it's not just that he is, which he was not, allegedly uh, foreign and Kenyan, but that it was he was Muslim. And the problem, supposedly, the thing that's sort of working in the subtext, if, if not particularly subtly, Uh, of birtherism is that there is an enemy of the United States at a time of war in the White House. And he is why the United States can't seem to win the war on terror. And then the longer that this happens, as long as these two dynamics, the policy dynamic, the political dynamic, the cultural dynamic feed on one another, it becomes, I believe, and I will, you know, endeavor to show in this book, inevitable that whether it was Trump, whether it would have been someone else, someone would have been able to walk through this very open door, this, this, this door that's open to nativism now, uh, that also allows, as we saw during the Trump administration, but also during earlier administrations, uh, demagogues who want to use the mechanisms, the architecture, the weapons of the war on terror in places like Portland, where you saw the Department of Homeland Security stuffing people into vans, things that immigrants, since DHS uh, had been around, had been rather used to. And you start seeing the way these dynamics feed upon themselves in really disturbing ways. By the way, that's not to say the right has no critique of the war on terror that that isn't worth listening to. There have been anti-war voices on the right Uh, that have spoken up about it quite frequently. The thing that I also try and explore in the book is how much of those sort of fed the other nationalist and nativist uh, purposes, uh, the anti-immigrant crusade, the anti-Muslim crusade. So uh, that's sort of the way, in a nutshell, uh, even though that might not have been a nutshell, the book kind of takes its critique. And I'm very curious what you saw up close and personal as all of this happened in the Trump uh, circle. Well, I can really speak because I was there at the time of the birtherism between Trump and his hatred for Barack Obama. His hatred for Barack Obama was predicated upon two things. First and foremost, actually, let's make it three. First and foremost is the fact that he's black. The second is the fact that he's brilliant. And that's something that Donald Trump has a problem with because he realizes his own inadequacies. And then the third, which really drove Trump crazy, was the fact that Barack Obama 
was wildly popular, especially outside of the United States. I'll never forget sitting in Trump's office when we spoke about Barack Obama in Germany. And there must have been about a million people lining up that gigantic mall and um, applauding for him and truly excited to see the first black American president. And that really pissed Trump off, something that I, to this day, I can't exactly explain why, other than the fact that it's just his own um, lack of self and that Trump needs to be adored and, and jeered by people in order to give him his own self-worth, something that really he's, he's just missing, and he's missing terribly. We spend a lot of time on the show talking about our broken political system. Much of it seems beyond our grasp and, dare I say, unfixable. Sometimes, though, you just don't want to think about it and wish that the problem would just go away. The same goes for when something's off in the bedroom. Rather than fix the problem, we pretend it's not happening and hope it just goes away. Well, folks, it doesn't. You need to take control of your own life and fix what's broken. What are you waiting for? Go to Roman.com slash Cohen now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A United States licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. And the whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash Cohen and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving your home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash Cohen now. You'll get $15 off your first month. It's really time to take care of your ED. And remember, get started today and you'll save $15 on your first order of ED treatment. But I wanted also to bring up to you, Spencer, that just this morning, Capitol Police had to shut down Congress after intelligence agencies picked up a whole slew of chatter about a possible March 4th attack from followers of QAnon who believed that the day to be, meaning today, that Donald Trump would supposedly be returned to the presidency and basically arrest all of his corrupt opponents. Discuss this latest threat with me and what your sources are saying. All I can really tell you uh, is that you heard in the January 6th uh, hearings yesterday in the Senate, uh, the Department of Homeland Security uh, and the FBI, they, the FBI sent their uh, senior counterterrorism official, uh, talking nebulously, talking kind of around the thing at issue for a variety of reasons that we can get into, uh, to say that they take uh, this prospect very seriously, that they don't see, uh, with Trump out of office, a diminution in the danger of uh, domestic violence, uh, right-wing and white supremacist uh, terrorism, they don't want to talk as national security officials about political issues, right? They don't want to say, the reason why this is happening is because you have this movement that a former president of the United States built, stoked, 
maintains and kind of wants to believe will carry him back into power. Now, if you think my interpretation is wrong, you just jump in and stop me. But uh, one of the things that also stuck out during these hearings was that uh, the FBI in particular is making a point of saying that as the pool of charges uh, from January 6th uh, starts expanding, that we've seen something now like, I think it's 270 people charged federally, uh, some more, I think it gets to about 300 uh, when local law enforcement gets involved. Uh, but what, you, what, what both uh, Christopher Ray, the director of the FBI, and Jill Sanborn, the senior FBI counterterrorism official, said is that you are starting to see more and more militias uh, be found within uh, the pool of charges, more militia members. And apparently this will be more forthcoming, a question about the degree to which there was real command and control pre-planned elements uh, that went into January 6th. You know, people showed up. Uh, with communication gear, uh, people showed up with improvised weapons. There were bombs at the DNC and the RNC that we still don't know uh, who set off. There have been no arrests in that. And it looks like those very volatile elements uh, aren't going away. And that seems to be um, what's you know at stake on, uh, we're recording this today, March 4th and per- perhaps beyond. Also, there's kind of the bureaucratic cover your ass element of it after uh, you know, these hearings are, are going on on the presumption that the security uh, state was found flat footed on January 6th. And now they certainly don't want to say we have no indication that it'll be, you know, a serious threat on March 4th and beyond. But if I could just say one more thing, um, one of the reasons that I'm glad you brought up uh, this QAnon threat and the threat from violence of it uh, right after asking me that in my book is because one of the other real uh important aspects of the post 9-11 era and one that I deal with extensively in my in my book Reign of Terror, which is forthcoming in August from Viking. And if anyone wants to pre-order that, uh, I'd really appreciate that from them, is the fact that all throughout the war on terror are very, very large falsehoods, if not outright lies. That, you know, for instance, that we didn't torture people, we only used, quote, enhanced interrogation techniques on them. And if so, it was absolutely necessary to find bin Laden and so on and so forth, that uh, Iraq was tied with al-Qaeda, that weapons of mass destruction were you know, to be found in stockpiles by Saddam Hussein, ready to be given to al-Qaeda and so on and so forth. Um, a lot of the same people uh, who had a lot of problems with the large lies that Donald Trump told in office um, were people in the security state. Uh, who helped stoke other very large lies uh, throughout the war on terror. People like Michael Hayden from the CIA uh, and, um, and the National Security Agency, people like John Brennan at, uh, at the CIA. So I, I just wanted to point out that, you know, legacy conspiracy theories that kind of drive the nation into different narrative corners questioning the building blocks of a shared reality and the delta between what they're seeing, what people who they look at as validators say, and trying to make sense of this whole thing. A lot of the unraveling of the truth in the United States kind of at scale, particularly when social media gets involved is, you know, happens sort of shortly after um, the the start of the 9-11 era. A lot of this stuff really traces in very direct and sometimes ironic ways 
into the post 9-11 era. And my book talks about that a whole lot. Well, that makes perfect sense. And one of the things I don't fully understand is we've watched Donald Trump lie to the American people from prior to even him becoming the nominee for the Republican Party. And yet, for some unknown reason, people accept his lies. They they just sweep it under the rug. Yeah, but that's only Donald Trump. But this is what Donald Trump is trying to say. No, that's wrong. It's not what he's trying to say. And they don't understand, like I do, the code that Donald Trump is talking. He he knows what he's saying. He knows how he's stoking it. Now, not every one of the people there on January 6th at the insurrection um, knew exactly what Trump was talking about. Because it's unique to what's in their mind and what they want, Donald Trump's words, which are, you know, they're not to the point that he's telling you what he wants. He's giving you enough latitude to make it into what you want. Mm. So whatever your worst inclination is, that's the words that you're going to accept from Trump and you're going to act on it. Now, the insurrection, as I've stated many, many times on television and in the press. Donald Trump knew what he was doing, and he knew when he told them, I will be meeting you at the Capitol, he knew that he didn't want them to disperse, that he wanted them to enter into the Capitol. Now, people will turn around and say, yeah, but he didn't want them to go in. He didn't want them to attack, uh, you know, the police officers. He didn't want them to hang Mike Pence or kill Nancy Pelosi, which the truth is he probably did want that. But when he turned around and he stated, I will meet you at the Capitol, that to me was the single most important line of the insurrection. He knew that by saying that he would move the crowd from where they were to where he wanted them to be. And his whole, his, his prayer was that they were going to stop the vote, that he would be reinstated as president, and that ultimately he would become the autocrat or the monarch that he so desperately wants to be. So in the book, one of the things that I try and you know demonstrate, uh, I say that Donald Trump is the perfect lagging indicator of the, of the war on terror, that it was inevitable that the war on terror would produce someone like, like this. I think that, you know, from, from everything you're saying, um, it speaks to what I think is, is truly Trump's, like, to be cold-blooded about it, real political talent. Demagoguery is a skill. It's something that you really have to perfect. He has a really natural tendency toward it. I suspect it's because, you know, his whole, you know, public career has been one of media manipulation, you know, portraying a leader you know, on The Apprentice and so on and so forth, someone that people compete to please, you would know a whole lot more about this dynamic than I would. But, you know, you see throughout history, this is the case with with fascist and nativist movements with, with a charismatic leader, really throughout history, throughout, uh, you know, Europe, South America, and, um, and so forth, where there's always wiggle room for the followers uh, to absolve, you know, the great man of culpability when it is convenient for that absolution to happen and then simultaneously give him credit for the thing they want to valorize when it's convenient for, for that, that credit to, to be bestowed. Um, one of the things that, you know, I've always kind of wanted to ask, and, and here we are having this conversation and you stop me if you don't want me to ask you questions, but, uh, which is a weird thing for a journalist to say, but it's your podcast and it's your house. So, uh, we'll see. 
Um, do you think Trump believed birtherism? Or do you think he saw that it was a convenient way of kind of communicating to what would become his followers that they would have a champion in him, someone who would reflect, refine, and empower their agenda? Yeah, so I'm not now speaking from opinion. I'm speaking from fact. He knew that Barack Obama was not born in Kenya. And he was looking for any information, and there was something in a bi- in a bibliography um, from some Harvard paper that had it that he was from Kenya. He knew for a fact that Barack Obama was an American citizen. When he turned around and made statements to the press, and I was sitting there in the office when he said, watch this shit. Tomorrow, it's going to be all over the front page. He goes, just watch this, Michael. And he turned around and he told the press, that he had sent a whole slew of investigators who have a lot of information and soon I will be releasing it about Barack Obama's true place of birth. It was a lie. He knew it was a lie. I knew it was a lie. The only people that didn't know that it was a lie was the media, which then ultimately became the United States population, or I should say the Trump supporters. And that's really sad when one psychopath, a sociopath, a narcissistic sociopath like Donald Trump can manipulate the media with such a with such simplicity and ease and then basically mm-hmm. he he adorned every newspaper the following day Donald Trump sends investigators off you know to Hawaii to prove Barack Obama's true place of birth it was really disgusting but he realized that it was a popularist view by a segment of this country, and he intended on exploring it. But Spencer, let me just keep moving forward here, because yet in a March 3rd piece for the Daily Beast, you wrote about how bureaucratic restrictions and public relations concerns from the Army and top Trump administration Pentagon appointees unreasonably restrained the D.C. National Guard from responding to the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Can you unpack for me what you believe the truth to be and why the National Guard was held back? And I bring up this question because I lived in D.C. for four years when I attended American University. And then I worked actually in the Rayburn building for Congressman Joe Moakley in 87 and 88. And I'll tell you something. I love that building. And I'll tell you what I love the most about it was the openness that as an American citizen, you could basically go anywhere that you wanted. You wanted to walk into the Capitol, you could walk into the Capitol. It's our home. The only place, of course, you couldn't is the White House. But you don't have what you have now, which are these prison gates. And I know from prison, these prison gates that are guarded by national security and everywhere, it takes away the beauty of Washington. It takes away the beauty of these magnificent buildings. And why? Because of these insurrectionists, because of Donald Trump's, you know, whistleblowing. But go back to me. What do you believe the truth to be as to why the National Guard was held back? So I'm a reporter. I don't want to say what I believe the truth to be before, like, we have really a sufficient amount of evidence to determine that. But I will walk you through the evidence as it's coming in now. And uh, people can draw kind of their own conclusions here. What that story was about uh, was probably the most dramatic testimony uh, given yet across what's now uh, the third hearing into what happened on January 6th. 
And this came from uh, the commanding general of the D.C. National Guard, uh, who talked about unreasonable restrictions that uh, the Trump-appointed defense secretary, acting defense secretary, Chris Miller, and the secretary of the Army, Ryan McCarthy, put on him. And what he was you know, trying to say you know, in a couple different ways was, first, we were never under this kind of restriction during the Black Lives Matter protests in Washington in June, where Trump got the National Guard onto the street, um, demanded it, really. Um, and secondly, that when it came to January 6th, throughout the whole afternoon, as you know, General Walker, like everyone else, is watching this unfold live on television, uh, he is trying to get his chain of command to just let him do what would ultimately be an 18-minute trip with over 150 guardsmen uh, out of the D.C. armory into the Capitol to relieve the Metro police. And the amount of restriction placed on him is something he said no one ever explained to him. So he didn't have a lot of you know, willingness to, to speculate about it, um, about what held it back. Instead, what he did was he just very methodically laid out the timeline of what happened from, I believe it was around like 1.37, uh, when the head of the Capitol Police, Steve's son, calls him up and says, like, we need immediate assistance. Uh, he gets told um, the day before uh, by uh, a letter from um, the, the, defense, the acting defense secretary, Chris Miller, uh, that he can't use, like, not just any weaponry, but even any personal protective gear, you know, helmets, riot shields, you know, that sort of thing isn't even available to them. And then it takes the better part of the entire day. Well, I shouldn't say the entire day, but three hours and 19 minutes before all of the restrictions are cleared away. There's an amazing moment where the DOD schmuck, the, the guy who, this guy they had testified from the defense department who wasn't there at the time, but is basically like collecting the stories. Um, neither Miller nor McCarthy was there. I, I imagine it's just a matter of time before they have to testify. Uh, the guy says that a, they were concerned because they got a lot of criticism uh, for, you know, the heavy handed, you know, guard and other response against Black Lives Matter uh, in June. Uh, so, you know, they were they were overwhelmingly concerned about avoiding that. So that's kind of heads I win, tails you lose if you're the Trump people in that circumstance. But also that even after Miller give, finally gives the order and like clears away the restrictions that happens that day at apparently 432 p.m., according to the Defense Department's own testimony. But General, General Walker isn't told he can actually deploy until 508. And they ask him, you know, you're from the Defense Department. How do you even explain that discrepancy? And the guy answers, Senator, it's an issue. So they don't even have their answers yet. We often talk about on this show about what we believe would have happened had this insurrection been Black Lives Matter. We often talk about it and the amount of carnage oh, that yeah. you would have seen left in the street. Something that's just very funny is I was um, talking to Ali Velshi uh, on, on the show. And then after the show, I speak to him on a regular basis. And he had told me that he was there uh, that day and he got shot in the freaking neck. And he goes, I will tell you, Michael, that freaking bu- that that rubber bullet really, really hurts. You know, he goes, it knocked the wind out of me. And I could only imagine that if this insurrection was based upon Black Lives Matter, the number of bodies that would have been left on the streets, 
it would have been something fierce. I, I truly don't understand it. Well, I, I would also just quickly say that, like, A, having, like, been out, you know, with some of the Black Lives Matter protests this summer, like, I saw what the reaction was. And absolutely, it would have been, you know, a total bloodbath. Second of all, Black Lives Matter isn't trying to storm the Capitol and overthrow the government and overturn a Democratic election. So, like, let's just make a point of of saying that outright. There's a lot of equivalences, even well-meaning ones like the one you're trying to make, that that I still feel kind of take this debate in a in a direction that it doesn't need to go. But beyond that, the point that that General Walker tried to make was that if he didn't have these restrictions placed on him, he believes that like early in the two o'clock hour, the National Guard could have made it to the Capitol and pushed the insurrection back, strengthened the Capitol police line, and hopefully like stop the breach or like, you know, maybe only a couple people instead of, I believe, an estimated like 800 like a battalion's worth of people end up in there. Um, So that was something, you know, he didn't want to get into what was sort of the specter hanging around the whole hearing, which was what was the relationship between Trump ordering like people, as you mentioned, if not quite ordering, ordering isn't the right word, but certainly inciting people to go there. And you had people like Ted Cruz and Josh and Don, and Don Trump Jr. and Rudy Giuliani all basically stoking the fire. Hate doing taxes? I know I do. And there's a lot of people out there who would love to do them for you. But I'm not talking about tax specialists. I'm talking about cyber criminals and identity thieves who are looking to steal your most precious financial information. During tax season, your personal info, like your name and social security number, may be emailed and shared more than usual. Criminals can steal info from your devices and sell it on the dark web or use it to commit other crimes, even years down the road. Tax season is a great time to be a cyber criminal, making it the best time to help protect yourself by using Norton 360 with LifeLock. I use it myself to protect my information from prying eyes and to practice good data security. This tax season, opt into cyber safety. Help protect against cyber criminals from stealing the info shared on your devices, spying on you over Wi-Fi, or stealing your identity. No one can prevent all cybercrime or identity theft or monitor all transactions, but don't let cyber criminals make tax season extra taxing. Save 25% or more your first year on Norton 360 with LifeLock at Norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off at Norton.com slash Cohen. You know, Spencer, I want to also bring up, because we were talking about the FBI, uh, and yesterday you tweeted about the FBI's bungling of intelligence reports prior to January 6th, and you wrote, and I quote, they want to say the FBI didn't miss warnings about January 6th, despite them being written about by reporters ahead of time. But they're leaning on how the Norfolk Field Office report was, and then a quote, raw and unverified information, which is surely the real answer for why the FBI didn't call Conti. Can you explain to my listeners and to me what's happening in regards to this Norfolk report and what responsibility the FBI may hold in all of this? Yeah, sure thing. So this is another storyline. It's another reason why I, you know, I wanted to say, like, as a reporter, like, I don't want to tell you exactly what I think happened because we're still gathering a lot of information. Um, the night before the insurrection on January 5th, 
the Norfolk field office of the FBI puts together uh, what, like a, what, what has been described as, as a kind of raw and uncorroborated report that essentially summarizes a lot of really sick, you know, postings on, on platforms that are basically saying like, you know, show up ready for war. It's time to spill blood. I forget specifically like what it says, but uh, that was the, the gist of it. The FBI makes a point of passing that up its chain. Um, but the day that it happens, the day that the, the insurrection happens, uh, the chief of the D.C. police, Robert Conti, uh, says that he doesn't get like really that that kind of fulsome warning. And when he testified last week, he said that, yes, he found out that the night before this warning, this this Norfolk FBI report was contained in an email he received. And he found that like really he was incredulous about that. He's like, if you really think that some, you know, extremely dangerous, you know, situation is going to unfold on the streets of the city that he's you know charged with policing don't you think a phone call would be on the order and it's basically like it looks a whole lot like the fbi is trying to have this both ways uh on the one hand i remember just like my whole you know series of of like notifications to my editors ahead of january 6th was like i'm the guy who's going to be like watching for violence that we are you know expecting to see that you know, all you have to do is just have read like the papers and, and, you know, watch TV and seen social media over the days and the weeks leading up to this. This was not subtle. Like tons of people were expecting violence. Like those of us in the public, like those of us who follow this stuff in the, in, in the press, we're expecting this to, to be a violent action after having seen however many antecedents um, unfold that way. And so it's amazing that the best the FBI can do is point to this one Norfolk memo, which under oath, senior FBI officials are cautioning. That's like, well, it's raw, it's unverified and all of that. Okay, so then I'm totally, so I'm curious here. What then then are your sources saying about Capitol Police who either actively aided rioters or passively allowed them to operate? Are you hearing any instances of real collusion between rioters and police that was organized before the fact? Because I think that's what you're trying to get to. I would put it like this. It is not just an open question, but it is a test for the federal investigation. Right now, there is a misleading narrative out there, misleading because of how many Capitol Police officers testified that insurrectionists like showed their badges whether being like active duty police, whether being retired police, active duty military, uh, retired military. And then we just saw like a ton of imagery of Capitol Police either like standing out of the way as people rushed in or not, you know, particularly, uh, you know, being motivated to help out. And also we saw imagery of Capitol Police escorting rioters delicately down the stairs. And, and, you know, out of 800 people, there was something like 50 arrests. That's a huge basis for, for asking how much like active collusion, you know, took place in the moment. How many people in the Capitol Police force, you know, if this happens again, God forbid, can, you know, be relied upon to either repel the rioters or actually, you know, help them. It's, it's, a, it's a huge question. And we're not seeing charges on that yet. And it, it is a big open question whether the FBI is looking into that as well or if that's just too politically dangerous 
given pro-police sentiment, which you know certainly exists within the FBI. Well, but, but, Spencer, like a, but Spencer, you're bringing up active duty service uh, members. And in essence, and I've heard this quite a bit, and I'd like to get your take on to it, that they're also a whole slew of them that are white supremacist extremists. And we heard this, if I'm not mistaken, from Defense Secretary Austin, who said that he expected numbers to be, and if I'm, and I'm going to quote it, a bit bigger than many of us expect. I think this is extremely dangerous, and I'm wondering how it just managed to sort of get past all of the higher ups, all of the upper echelon that you actually have active service members and members of our police force that are also engaged in white supremacy. So a couple different things, and you know, you'll forgive me if I'm, you know, talking about my book too much, but you know, for the past 20 years, the people law enforcement and intelligence are looking at as terrorists are not white people. You know, we can dance around that as, as much as as much as we want, but that's the fact that that the image to law enforcement and intelligence of who is a dangerous person is not a white man with a flag and a gun and back the blue decals on his car, right? It's looking at Muslim kids. It is looking at immigrants. It is looking at foreigners. And overwhelmingly, over time, you have seen, like particularly, you know, with Trump's embrace of Blue Lives Matter, a really disturbing sentiment on the part of a lot of cop shops around this country that they are part of this culture war and the people that they are there to suppress are not white supremacist militiamen, people who are like willing to, you know, invade the U.S. Capitol on the, the vain hope of overturning an election, but instead other people, non-white people, poor people, black people especially. That is the essentially the target of not just policing locally, but you know, policing federally and for national security reasons, essentially looking away. There's so many examples over the last 20 years of the coalescing white supremacist militias. One of the reasons for this is because as we saw after Oklahoma City in 1995, too many powerful, politically powerful people on the right have you know, spent a lot of effort trying to make sure that viewing those sorts of people as potential terrorists, as insurrectionists, I don't like the idea of treating anyone with a war on terror, just to be really clear about that. But the point I'm trying to make is politically powerful people kept that debate from happening, kept a reckoning with white supremacy and its ability to bleed into not just law enforcement, but in the military and be sheltered and sanctioned there. Remember, Timothy McVeigh was a decorated army soldier. He was a Gulf War veteran. He got good responses on his evaluations, despite the fact that in his army barracks, he wore a shirt that said white pride that he got from a membership uh, to the Ku Klux Klan. He wore that in full view of black soldiers in his own barracks. So this is a problem that, you know, Austin is talking about. He also said um, during that press conference that he believes like 99.9% of service members have nothing to do with white supremacy. Absolutely. They have nothing to do with it. And the same thing holds true with the police department. There's always going to be that small, and I mean really small fringe of individuals that unfortunately because of who they are, 
that they end up becoming this story. And it's really unfair to all of those, whether, regardless of your color, that are in the military or in the police force, that they now have to be looked at differently simply because some of their brethren, right, um, are members of this white extremist. But I also want to bring up for a second, Spencer, about the Department of Homeland Security, because you recently wrote this. We are aware we have to invest more in understanding domestic terror. This is what we were just talking about. Uh, testifies DHS acting intelligence chief inadvertently making an effective case for the abolition of the Department of Homeland Security. Can you unpack for my listeners what you meant here and how the DHS is unequipped to deal with this threat? Thank you so much for that question, Michael. So let's give a quick review of the Department of Homeland Security. The Department of Homeland Security is is the quintessential bureaucratic creation after 9-11. It is the result of uh, Joe Lieberman, uh, our old friend, uh, the 2000 Democratic vice presidential nominee and former senator from Connecticut, along with his Republican colleague, Arlen Specter, viewing an incoherency at the heart of the government's post 9-11 domestic counterterrorism initiatives. And what the answer ends up being is pulling together this massive, like Frankenstein's monster of an agency, immigration uh, enforcement from the Justice Department, uh, aviation security um, from um, the Department of Transportation, and so on and so forth, until it becomes this massive, massive agency that's supposed to be devoted to ensuring that domestic terrorism in the United States simply does not occur. Now, the Department of Homeland Security has not just one job, um, but it does have that as its sort of defining ethos. That's the whole point of why it's, quote unquote, homeland security. It's also a weird agency, as its policing powers are overwhelmingly in immigration enforcement, not in counterterrorism. It can perform analysis um, over certain events, but it has its ability to collect in information is limited. That, of course, changed thanks to like the, the development um, over time of the war on terror um, and the, the empowerment of the harder edges of, of immigration enforcement. Those get collection activities anyway, but I digress. The point being, the Department of Homeland Security is, has you know that one basic mission to be looking out consistently across what it sees in the United States for instances of domestic terrorism and feeders to it. It looked, as you know, the story I tell in my book goes, overwhelmingly at, uh, at Muslims and not at this coalescing uh, white supremacist threat, militia threat, far-right threat, and so on and so forth. In 2009, an analyst inside a kind of backwater component of a DHS intelligence shop, a guy named Daryl Johnson, after Barack Obama is elected, puts together an analysis that says there's a real danger of rising right-wing extremism and militancy coinciding uh, with the election of Barack Obama, that this is going to be a real threat. And Republicans went crazy about this. They talked overwhelmingly about how this was a prelude uh, for Barack Obama coming to target them and treating them as the terrorists when they, in fact, were the good counter-terrorists. And, you know, isn't America supposed to be about protecting, you know, the good guys from the bad guys, quote unquote. And overwhelmingly, the Obama administration decided it didn't want any part of that problem and just suppressed the analyst 
and let it go. And we are seeing overwhelmingly the fruits of that incredibly dangerous and neglectful and irresponsible decision. And when the Department of Homeland Security reaches a point where it says, after 20 years and however many hundreds of billions of dollars, that it doesn't really know if it has like such a great threat picture or even how to go about putting one together of who's a dangerous white supremacist extremist uh, who might grow violent. Well, you just signed your own tombstone. Like that should be the bureaucratic last word on you. You were not, in fact, looking at domestic terrorism. You were looking at Muslims. That's what you were doing for the last 20 years. And if you couldn't see this really serious threat coalescing, I think it is time to ask really hard questions about whether we ought to have a Department of Homeland Security at all. Much as we ought to be asking, do we need a war on terror at all? Or has this all just been a disaster that's made us less free, less safe, and hate each other more? Well, why is this any different than than Trump's um, immigration ban, which we all know, and this is not opinion, this is fact, we all know that it was a Muslim ban. That was Donald Trump's intent when he when Steve Miller and Steve Bannon promoted the Muslim ban under the guise of it being immigration. But I do also, since we're talking about Trump again, on March 2nd, you described an amazing moment as Ted Cruz, someone who I think is one of the most fucking despicable human beings in this country, pushed the lie that Biden stole the election says January 6th didn't come out of nowhere before then pivoting away like the like the snake that he is from the implication you who is reading this tweet understand discuss that implication with me if you can yeah sure thing so here's ted cruz uh like the the guy in the hot dog from i think you should leave costume uh you know talking like you know we're all trying to find who actually did this thing right here like ultimately cruz is one of uh the trumpists in the senate who up to January 6th, is relentlessly pushing that the election has been stolen from Trump, there are you know, irregularities and so forth and so on. As one of the people who is bringing this riot to the Capitol by telling people in a manner that I wonder if he even actually believes, and I'm not totally sure about that, um, that will be this insightful moment. That, you know, it's just playing with fire when you lie to people and when you lie to people at scale. And that's what what this was. And now all of a sudden, after this disaster happens, you've got Cruz and Josh Hawley, who, remember, saluted with his fist pump, the insurrectionists as they approached the Capitol. Hawley and Cruz, you know, two members of the Senate who said they weren't going to vote for the certification, uh, a dereliction of constitutional duty, not that, you know. Not that it seems like, you know, a lot of people in, in Congress are interested in disciplining their own. But nevertheless, Cruz and Hawley are on this committee and they have to ask questions of, you know, the Capitol Police, the National Guard, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security and so forth, while trying assiduously, as hard as they can, to avoid talking about their own culpability in this sort of thing. And this is what, you know, strikes me as, you know, one of like the kind of atmospheric things hovering over all of the January 6th hearings in Congress so far, which is that they want to talk about this overwhelmingly as a security failure, a failure of the FBI to collect sufficient information and distribute it, a failure of the Pentagon uh, suppressing the, the National Guard from the Capitol, a failure of the Capitol Police and so on and so forth. All of those things appear to have been real components of what happened, but it's not the full story. The full story is about 
the way in which powerful politicians in this country on the right had decided that they would stoke this because, I don't know, you, you had the one guy, um, you know, anonymously quoted in the Washington Post, you know, talking about like, would it be so bad uh, if, you know, we just let Trump have his temper tantrum and so forth. And, you know, we see the wages of that right now. It turned out it was so bad. It turns out appeasement doesn't work. It turns out appeasement makes all of this stuff a lot more volatile, a lot more dangerous. People died on January 6th. People committed suicide afterward. Like this, this, this was just such a, a compounding disgrace. And it seems, you know, admittedly, this is early and admittedly we have you know, incomplete information, but it really seems like they are trying um, in Congress now to kind of, you know, conveniently memory hole the degree to which elected officials, their colleagues stoked this because it is simply too uh, incendiary, a political question to talk about the degree to which there is now a normalized movement with a home in the Republican Party against democracy. This is an enormous, if not the most urgent political question there is. And if we only view it as a security problem, we're only going to get a security-based solution. It's only going to be going after not just low-level people who took part in the insurrection, but it's going to be about stoking another war on terror. It's going to be about giving the security agencies more authorities. It's going to be about making Americans less free. And if you think that this is okay, because right now it will be focused against, you know, people uh, who, you know, liberals might, you know, disagree with and view, you know, not without reason is genuine danger. Wait until there's another Republican president and watch as how these powers, as they always have been, will be used against non-white people and will be used against the left wing in this country. Oh, 100%. No different than the way that Trump empowered the Department of Justice to come after me, not once but twice. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here. And we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable... You have to check it out. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Check out last week's episode with XPRIZE founder Peter Diamandis discussing the bold advances in store for humanity. I also found time to catch up on some old episodes and found this December 2019 interview with a former KGB spy in America. It was absolutely fascinating. There's an episode for everyone, though no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot. But one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
But Spencer, I will say that I loved your retweet from August of last year. And you wrote, Andrew Cuomo is to coronavirus what Rudy Giuliani was to 9-11. In a crisis, his authoritarian tendencies get retconned as leadership and their destructive impacts on people forgotten. When it comes time for the next phase of his ambition, there'll be bewilderment regarding his behavior. Unpack this for me and my listeners in the context now of Cuomo's latest sexual harassment scandal. Do you believe him to be as compromised a human as Rudy is? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, all you really had to do, Alex Perina, the New Republic, had a wonderful piece on this uh, the other day. All you really had to do to understand what Cuomo was is read the papers and pay the slightest bit of attention over the last 10 years or, you know, longer when, you know, I was a kid, but, um, you know, he was, you know, his father's uh, political aide. Cuomo has always been a bully. Cuomo has always been someone for whom power appears like its own end. He can be politically protean that way, kind of like how Trump is, certainly how Giuliani is. The ends can shift. There's not a whole lot, you know, outside of, you know, certain, I don't know if this is true for Cuomo, but, you know, with Trump and with Giuliani, certain really noxious political tendencies, you know, specifically, you know, all the racism and the uh, the comfort with lying and with brutality. I don't think Cuomo is, you know, is like that in that specific sense. But there was, you know, all throughout 2020, a package narrative delivered by, you know, Cuomo's brother on CNN that you know, here was this take charge guy uh, who was, you know, doing everything that, you know, Trump wasn't willing to do with the coronavirus. And here is someone uh, that, that, that you can trust. And that just wasn't simply compatible with 10 years of, you know, Governor Cuomo, you know, bullying behavior. And, you know, this is a, admittedly a little personal. Um, I have an aunt uh, who is a ward of New York State, uh, who I found out uh, in, I guess, December, early January must have been, uh, had uh, tested positive for the coronavirus. And, you know, thankfully she is okay, or at least so I've been told. I don't honestly know how much I can believe at this point. Um, But this happened shortly before it was reported, you know, that Tish James, the attorney general of New York, has an investigation now out after determining that the Cuomo government covered up thousands of deaths of people's loved ones in nursing homes. And I, I just don't know. I, I was I was kind of taken aback and without words that, you know, someone whom, you know, the media had so consistently, you know, portrayed uh, against the available evidence as a heroic figure in coronavirus had done this and had done this to, you know, it, I don't, I, I I'm getting tongue tied. Yeah. You it, know, I'm going to tell just, you, Spencer, I never really followed much of Cuomo um, over the course of my years. I was really much more involved in the Washington politics to the extent that I wasn't doing my my shit for Trump, right? So I never really saw Cuomo. I never had much to do with him other than to say that Trump never cared for the Cuomo family, despite the fact that uh, Cuomo's mom and Trump's mom were actually friends. 
Um, they they never there. particularly Trump never cared for Andrew Cuomo. He never really cared for Chris Cuomo either. But what bothers me the most is all of these allegations now that are coming out. And I say, as he does, let the process take its place. You know, it's a little bit different in my estimation than Anthony Weiner with his dick pic or Spitzer with the prostitute, right? But Cuomo has to stand responsible for the allegations, um, assuming that they're true, um, that these women are bringing forth. And that's the nice thing about the truth. It will always find its way up, right? The thing that bothers me the most as I'm now reading and learning more about Cuomo, and again, I've been in New York my entire life, is I'm not sure that Cuomo has actually ever done anything that has legitimately benefited New York. I truly cannot figure out what it is that's out there that he has done. And that's why I'm saying to all New Yorkers who may be listening to this program, it's really time we start to look at people who are going to actually do things that benefit the state, that benefit the, you know, the taxpayers of New York. And look, people are leaving New York at an alarming rate. Why? Because between city, state, federal, you know, who can really afford to live in New York and why? I mean, Florida's new calling cry is sick and tired of paying stupid taxes in New York. Hey, come on, come on to us. The weather's better, right? So I don't understand this year after year after year, people continuing to, you know, support the likes of Cuomo. I think it's really about time that people start looking at their politicians, the guys that have been in there 14, 16, 20 years. And it's time to say, maybe, maybe it's time that they get a real job, right? And stop sucking off of, right? The, you know, the financial tit of the, of the state. It's really, I, I think it's disgusting. I think we really need to start putting in people that care more about New York, that care more about us as the citizens, then they care about their own political, you know, ambitions. And obviously we know Cuomo has some pretty high, you know, um, ambitions for himself. But let me go then to the next thing as we're beginning to wind down our hour. In a February 26th piece for the Daily Beast, you write about the DOJ opening the door to seeking new domestic terrorism powers. And this really fascinated me, by the way. And then you tweeted that it could be one of the most ominous steps the Biden administration takes. Discuss this with me, if you would. Yeah. So, in the in the you know immediate days after January sixth, a big left right civil libertarian coalition, knowing you know the memory of nine eleven and how quickly they passed the Patriot Act and ultimately established the Department of Homeland Security and you know so on and so forth, would likely be um, the template. Uh, that people in Washington would reach for this time, you know, those in the Democratic Party rather than the Republican Party. Um, and this coalition instead said, you know, when you look at the available authorities uh, for going after the specific people who committed uh, the insurrection, federal law enforcement already has every power they could possibly want uh, to charge. And against that, a small but, you know, starting but a really growing, you know, effort began often, you know, people who were former FBI officials or former, you know, um, federal law enforcement started to, to push for a domestic terrorism statute. What do we mean by that? 
So unlike with Al-Qaeda or ISIS or other you know, foreign-based uh, terrorist groups, there is no domestic, uh, there is no way to designate a specific group in the United States that's just among Americans a terrorist group. Um, and what the implications of that really are, are that, you know, you can't basically do a Patriot Act on them, which is to say criminalize, you know, their sources of funding, criminalize people who give them um, specific help. And one of the reasons that people have uh, for 20 years pushed back against uh, the Patriot Act there is that, you know, doing so in the way the Patriot Act does, the way a domestic terrorism statute would, just expands the circle of who law enforcement prosecutors and intelligence can look at and bring charges against overwhelmingly in this country, the hundreds of people who ended up in jail, ended up in federal prison, I should say, um, through Justice Department counterterrorism prosecutions, were not people who committed acts of violence. They were people who committed acts of funding, some knowingly and some not, and as well, people whom uh, FBI uh, undercover agents or confidential informants essentially you know, coerced or encouraged, or if you want to get a little, you know, more controversial about it, entrapped uh, people who they were targeting, who were just like said noxious stuff on social media into like committing, you know, crimes, purchasing like tons of fertilizer that could be repurposed as an explosive and other kinds of banned material. That is what has started now from the FBI over the last couple, um, I guess, you know, maybe two weeks worth of uh, testimony and press conferences and so forth started to open the door to. The the FBI has started to kind of lean away from saying we have every uh, authority we need into sort of suggesting to to Congress that, you know, if you wanted to give us more power, we would eagerly take that. No one's ever going to say no to that. So are you willing to do that? And I think if we look at the wages of 20 years of the war on terror, it's a disaster. It's an unmitigated disaster. It's something that made us, again, less free, less safe. It distributed a ton of wealth upward to defense contractors, wealth we desperately need in this country for working people. And at the end, what did it get us? Not a whole lot. It certainly didn't stop us from getting the January 6th insurrection. And if you liked the first movie, I would suggest like you're going to like the sequel, uh, which is what, you know, we're in danger of, of seeing develop in there. I'll editorialize a little bit because, you know, it's in my book already and it's in my writings. But there is a real concern that's going to you know, play out, I think, over the next several months over whether, you know, by drift or design, either can work. Uh, the response to January 6th is going to be to target a very large group of people who might believe in things that I find disgusting, but haven't actually threatened or pose a danger to other people. And that is just not simply, I think, the country that a lot of us want and the country that I think any of us deserve. Right. But I think that it's really fair to point out that the FBI and our law enforcement, being that they are the best of the best, that there has to be something that they can do. I mean, think about it. You can't go on the fucking airplane anymore with a bottle of water, right? Some asshole sticks a string in his in his sneaker, right? And now you have to take your shoes off worldwide. There has to be something that could be done in order to keep us safe, to keep us protected, that doesn't necessarily over-infringe upon our rights as U.S. citizens, but will also 
let us feel safe and be safe and to continue. But the biggest problem, in my opinion, is the fact that Trump undermined the legitimacy and the authority of the FBI and of law enforcement. And he spent four solid years basically dismantling them, pulling them apart, making them like the rest of us at the Trump organization, running around trying to figure, do you need to go to the left? Do you need to go to the right? Am I going upstairs? Am I going downstairs? Never really understanding because he never fully understood what was going on. And what Captain Chaos would then do is just sow more chaos so that he could end up trying to effectuate what he wanted. And I say this, and I'm saying this with fact. I, I fucking hate all these people that keep talking in you and, well, you know, I think that, that it's not about thinking anymore. It's now fact is important. Facts matter. And the fact of the matter is Donald Trump does not want to be president of the United States. He wants to be like Vladimir Putin. He wants to be an autocrat. He wants to be a monarch, he, just like Mohammed bin Salman. He wants to be a dictator like Kim Jong-un. That's who he is, and that's what he wants, plain and simple. And anybody that doesn't see it is either blind or just or, or just doesn't want to see it for whatever their own personal reasons may be. You know, all I would add to that is, you know, to speak to, you know, the question that you posed about what is it we can do? On the one hand, the FBI has been saying that, you know, it's arrested over 270 people, you know, people who actually, you know, it has reason to believe committed these specific crimes. So it seems like they actually have the power to do a fair amount. But more to the point, you know, when you bring up Trump, if the country doesn't honestly reckon with the forces that, you know, it's not just Trump creating them. All Trump did, all the war on terror did was unleash them. These have been, you know, nativist forces all throughout American history, white supremacist forces all, you know, throughout American, American history, class war forces from the rich against the poor all throughout American history. All Trump did was channel them in a direction that was beneficial for him and for his movement. Unless we challenge that, a political act, not a security act, we're just going to end up right back here with more and worse of the same. And, you know, whatever, you know, arrests, you know, the FBI and so forth make will just be the arrests of one wave and more of this come through. The war on terror is pretty conclusively failed. Why do it again? Well, you're right. Now, as we're winding down the hour, Spencer, I basically have one last question for you. And it refers back to a February 23rd tweet that you wrote. They're going to call this an intelligence failure so as to avoid the actually necessary conversation about the mainstreamed far-right politics that fueled it. Now, there's a very familiar resonance from 2002 to 2004. Can you explain this to my listeners? All of this uh, at length is in my book, Reign of Terror, which Viking will publish in August. So if you want to hear a longer version about that, uh, please, please, please pre-order the book. Uh, but in general, what happened after 9-11 was a political establishment that did not want to deal with the fact that the United States was the overwhelming unipolar superpower that essentially determines what the rules-based international order is, along with its allies and the institutions uh, through which it works. I believe in such a circumstance, an attack like 9-11 was kind of inevitable when you're in a circumstance of such awful power. That doesn't mean remotely to excuse it. 
It doesn't mean remotely that there aren't serious answers uh, to be had with why that particular attack was able to succeed. And it doesn't mean remotely that it was okay or that the United States deserved it. My neighbors did not deserve to die in the World Trade Center. Ultimately, what we have to look at is how the structural forces that we unleash lead to reckonings like this. And if we don't ultimately do that, if we're not willing to ask ourselves if like, we need to be the world's policemen, then all we're going to end up doing is looking at the very specific mistakes after the fact that you know, no intelligence official is going to be completely omniscient and it will end up turning into an excuse not to deal with the problem, but to only deal with its manifestations. The intelligence community couldn't, you know, solve 9-11, couldn't infiltrate it, couldn't ultimately uh, predict it before it happened with, you know, sufficient force to stop it. Well, we better allow uh, the creation of a global surveillance dragnet under the NSA. We better assemble a Department of Homeland Security. Uh, We better uh, pass a Patriot Act to make everybody's records less secure. Um, and weaken the Fourth Amendment, and so on and so forth. And all of this seems like a really important bit of prologue uh, to understand and review now that we're considering what to do after January 6th. And if you're interested in that backstory, if you're interested in that context, and if you're interested in its resonance to the present day, please, please, please pre-order Reign of Terror from Viking Books coming out in August. Spencer, I got to tell you, I'm looking forward to reading your book. And, you know, one of the things that I have to acknowledge is you certainly have this um, this area down packed. It's very scary where we're at today because it's not just the ideology. It's the ability of these groups in order to communicate just so easily, whether it's these encrypted apps, whether it's um, other types of back channels that didn't exist prior to or they're just so easy now you know everybody has a cell phone and they have these encrypted apps they're able to communicate with each other look i'm i'm all for you know increasing um intelligence and making sure that we're safe of course to a certain extent but look i i want to thank you for your insight i want to thank you for all of your great writings and thank you most importantly for coming on the show really appreciate it Thank you, Michael. Next time, I hope uh, we can talk a little bit about the Yankees, because I understand you, like me, are a big fan. Yes, I am. I, I am, and I can't wait to get out of home confinement so I can go to a game. And I can't wait for this pandemic to be over so that I can actually go there and have a couple of hot dogs. So, Spence, I will, see, I will see you there. All right. Thank you very much, Michael. Be good. And now for today's mea culpa. That Andrew Cuomo should crumble so suddenly from hero to disgrace is something that politicians and cultural figures need to take heed. The intoxication of fame, even by proximity, is a powerful drug that can completely overpower your better senses if you don't check yourself. Cuomo's aides did him a disservice in trying to clean up his record by hiding and rewriting those health department reports. First and foremost, it's illegal and morally reprehensible. But moreover, they started down a path from which there is no return. Once a lie gets told, then hidden, it begins to compound upon itself. And the lie generates new lies and further untruths. Pretty soon, 
you find yourself unable to remember who or what you used to be because you've spent so much time trying to rewrite somebody else's reality. But the truth always comes out no matter how big the lie. That they thought they could change something as fundamental as death statistics and not get caught, knowing that they had bullied and angered scores of health professionals is just imbecilic and naive. But they had already crossed the line they could not uncross. Their truth was the only truth that mattered. This is something I personally experience on a daily basis working for fucking Donald Trump. There was only one reality that mattered, and it was the one conjured and spun by him. If you wanted to keep your job and your proximity to fame, you would do just about anything to maintain this delusion. My life became oriented around keeping his various lies and half-truths in place. For a time, it was thrilling, but slowly it eats away at you like acid and becomes toxic, and all you're doing is swimming through a river of shit. I say all of this because Andrew Cuomo is living proof of what I am trying to say. You can see the pain in his face and on the purse of his lips. He knows he's finished. The bigger lie, the more people are inclined to believe. But it's also a burden you must carry with you day in and day out. Andrew Cuomo, it seems, has come to a watershed moment. What he does next will determine not only his political future, but whether or not he can escape the shackles of his own lies. It's a weight most people can't and do not want to carry. I gave it up when I turned on Donald Trump, and it saved my life. I'm curious to see if Andrew Cuomo will do the same. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up, in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. This is my Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, and Fire TV and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in, watch free.